0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 96. From Word to Silence, The Rise of the Apophatic in Late Antiquity. What is apophatic language, and why should we care? We should care, I would argue, because apophasis, the unsaying of higher reality, one of the most important and most fascinating manifestations of the esoteric that we find in the Western tradition. In this episode, we want to do two main things. The first is to explain what we mean by that statement we've just made. What is apophatic language and what is its relationship to esotericism? And the second will be a historical overview of a lot of the territory covered by the podcast so far, with a glimpse into the late antique future, specifically looking at the origins of apophatic language, its development, and the transformations of thinking lying behind this change in ways of expression. We've talked about apophasis before, of course, in the podcast, but let's review the basics. There is a Schwepp glossary page. You can find it at Schwepp.net slash info slash glossary. In case you're unaware of this, and there we define our working terms for the podcast we define esoteric as follows quote this term has many shades of meaning and its exact parameters are hotly debated within the academic study of western esotericism this podcast's default definition is simply presented as being meant only for the initiated unpacking this a little bit information is esoteric if one it is presented as being accessible only to a select group, and two, if it is presented as being wisdom of a higher order. End of quote. So that's our definition of esotericism, or the esoteric, more accurately. Now let's turn to our definition of apophasis on the same page. This Greek term, best translated as unsaying, refers to the practice sometimes known as the via negativa or negative theology, if God, or the first principle of reality, transcends human thought and language, there is formally nothing we can say about it. Apophatic philosophers thus confine themselves to making negative statements about this reality. E.g., God is the unground of reality, Jakob Burma. The One is nothing, Plotinus. Things get really interesting when Apophasis denies even the denials, We then have full-blown unsaying, often in the form of God is X, God is not X, God is neither X, nor not X, but something higher than either, and so forth. So those are our two definitions. In this episode, we're not actually going to be confining ourselves to this latter form of recursive language, what we might call strict apophasis. This is typical of very late Platonists like Proclus, and of the Christian apophatic traditions, and has a kind of formal genre to it. The God is X, God is not X, God is neither X, nor not X, but something higher. We want to talk more about the simple speech act of denying that anything can be said about a given reality, which, if it then turns back and even questions itself, for example, saying, we can't even say that God is ineffable because ineffable is itself a word which predicates something of God, This, for us, is apophasis. Now here is why, if we're interested in Western esotericism, we are interested in apophatic language. Let's take an example, the famous philosophic digression of Plato's seventh letter. Plato, or it might be pseudo-Plato, see episode 25 on this matter. Plato, or the author of the seventh letter, is attacking certain writings which are in circulation in his day on the subject of high matters of philosophy. He doesn't actually tell us what these writings are talking about specifically, which is great because it adds to the mysterious character of this whole passage. Plato says that he himself has never written anything about these matters because, quote, "...for it is not at all speakable, like other subjects of study, but from much working together on the matter itself and living in company." suddenly a light, as it were leaping from fire, kindles in the soul, and thenceforth grows on its own. End of quote. Now the phrase, hretongar udamos, which we've translated as not at all speakable, can be read in two ways. Well, at least two ways. One is that this mysterious subject of study ought not to be discussed for reasons we might think of elitist philosophical esotericism, a a stance which we find in many passages from Plato. It will not do to cast pearls before swine and expose the highest matters of philosophy to just anyone who can read. Hence, we do not write about these matters of philosophy. They are not reiton. See episode 25 for more on this elitist attitude in Plato. However, We could read this passage in another way as well. It's not that these matters ought to be left unsaid. It's that they cannot be said. They are ineffable. By this reading, these matters can be apprehended by the student, but only through a somewhat mysterious process whereby, by doing philosophy in the company of other philosophers, from much working together on the matter itself and living in company, to quote Plato, this higher knowledge, if it is knowledge— is kindled in the soul and sort of takes on a life of its own. Now this latter reading is more or less how this passage was read by the late Platonists. The highest reality is ineffable, its nature cannot be put into words or even comprehended by human thinking, and so it remains perforce unsaid. It can, however, be accessed through the attainment of higher states of consciousness. To use modern terminology, the Platonists never discuss higher states of consciousness per se, but will typically discuss noesis, vision or touching of the one, and a number of other formulations which remove these exalted states from the normal run-of-the-mill thinking or knowledge. So it may be that states of consciousness This very modern way of putting it doesn't do too much violence to the evidence. Anyway, the epistemology whereby one can attain to, let's say, an encounter with the true reality very much transcends anything we would call thinking for late Platonists like Plotinus and pretty much everyone after him. Now, for an esotericism scholar who likes to think about the problems of ineffability, this passage from the seventh Platonic letter has already presented us with more than enough material for an entire episode of the podcast. So many logical problems arise from either reading of this passage from the seventh letter that we have to enter a complete labyrinth of contradiction and paradox to think it all through, which is perhaps part of the point of this passage, knowing Plato. But we're going to set this labyrinth aside for a special episode, since not everyone is as into the problems of language, inference, truth, and associated matters which arise from taking statements like this seriously as we are. We don't have time to go into this labyrinth here, so we're setting it to one side. But what is the link between apophatic language and esotericism? According to our definition of the esoteric, any statement that there is a higher truth, but it can't be revealed, whatever form that statement takes, is an example of the esoteric. In other words, we're looking at the esoteric as something performative, something you do, This can take the form of genuinely keeping certain matters secret, or like hiding them in plain sight in a way which really does require a certain training to find them. Our discussions of Clement of Alexandria revealed, I think, that he really was writing esoterically in this way, hiding his higher or perhaps his more dangerous doctrines in his published work through a form of intentional scattering and making it difficult to find, but it's still there. And we have little doubt that Clement's teaching activity, just like Plato's, in the academy, involved presenting given doctrines to given students based on their readiness to receive them, i.e. their teaching was also esoteric. Now, this is how esotericism differs from secrecy. If I have a secret, I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not going to say I have a secret, but I'm not revealing it. The moment I do that, I'm being esoteric, according to the definition of this podcast, as long as the secret I have is some higher grade of knowledge or higher grade of wisdom, rather than just like the place I hid the spare key, or something like that. Now, we also find a whole lot of written esotericism which doesn't really hide anything. For a really crass example, you can pick up The Secret, a modern, new agey sort of book. And my all-time favorite (laughs) example of this kind of esoteric discourse, the entire presentation of The Secret is a big, soggy swamp of esoteric language. This is the true secret. It has been hidden for eons. But only you, the elect initiate, who has, well, found it at the bookstore and paid 20 bucks for it, for this arcane tome, is worthy of learning it. And here it is. I'm going to reveal it. Blah, blah, blah. Performative esoteric writing through the roof. Actual secrecy, zero. The secret of the secret, it turns out, is basically think-and-grow-rich style, self-help stuff drawing on the new thought movement of the early decades of the 20th century. The law of attraction. Not such a secret, is it really? Anyway, we also consider this an example of the esoteric here on the podcast. By our working definition, the esoteric can consist solely and entirely of rhetoric. There doesn't even need to be a secret, just the idea of one. Now we're getting to the point. There are various takes on apophatic language, and one of the main ones discusses it in terms of mysticism. Let's consider the late Platonist Plotinus, or the pseudo-Dionysius, the writer who actually sort of invented both the term mysticism and the term apophatic, as we shall see in the course of the podcast. Both of these authors, Plotinus and Dionysius, find innovative ways of discussing at length why they cannot discuss what they are discussing. That is the true nature of the highest reality. The pseudo-Dionysius tends to call this reality God, while Plotinus calls it the one or the good or sometimes even the beautiful. But they are, by the logic of their own denials that anything can be said about this reality, both actually not discussing what they say they are discussing. The pseudo-Dionysius calls the term God into question. Plotinus denies every possible linguistic formulation of the one. Not only can we not say the one is X, Y, Z x, y, z being predicates like, for example, a unity or transcendent or great or good or whatever. We can't say any of that of the one. We can't even say the one is. We can't use the verb to be in the context of the one. In fact, we cannot even say the one. In fact, we can't even take away the the and just say one. It's all wrong. So on the level of the speech act, Plotinus and the Pseudo-Dionysius are both doing what we would call performative esotericism. They are telling us only two things which can really be put into words. One, that what they are saying is not, in fact, what they are saying. And two, that the reality to which they are referring is not actually being revealed by what they're saying about it. In other words, they're hiding it. They're displaying the fact they're hiding it. In other words, higher knowledge discussed with the rhetorics of secrecy. Apophasis is performative esotericism, and in fact, I think it's one of the go-to forms of esoteric discourse which sort of defines the Western tradition, at least the Western theological traditions, from late antiquity onwards. Now, let's turn to history and see if we can pin down the development of apophatic approaches to God, or the highest reality, onto a timeline. A little bit, anyway. Historically, as a scholar of esotericism, this is what I see happening in the broad strokes. Over time, as the Hellenic intellectual world evolves, thinkers, and here I mean not just super high octane philosophers and theologians, but a major strand of religious thinkers, particularly ones whose theology has a major influence from philosophy, a cross fertilization. Between philosophy and theology, to which we shall return, over time, some Hellenic thinkers began to question whether reality in its true nature could really be accurately mapped out or described by human language. They began to speak increasingly using apophatic language, confining themselves to denials rather than positive statements. And as late antiquity progressed, they began really to explore what this substitution means, realizing that even a denial, say, we cannot say what God is, but we can say he is not evil, even denials like this are in fact positive statements, since we've already said God is, which is not allowed by the rules of total ineffability. To put this into perspective, the Stoics and the Epicureans, two Hellenistic schools of philosophy, both thought of language as basically a kind of externalized thought, and felt that it was perfectly adequate for mapping reality. There is no Stoic ineffable. I'm oversimplifying here, but this is good enough for the present discussion. Aristotle, too, doesn't really worry about stuff that cannot be put into words. And as the inventor of logic, if by logic we mean a systematic exploration of valid inference and the truth claims of language, as the inventor of logic, Aristotle did a lot of amazing work, but also seems to modernize To have been remarkably overconfident that his system of syllogisms could accurately account for every sort of statement about reality that one could make, and thus that it is really presenting a valid um, map of reality. As an aside, Aristotelian logic, in fact, has serious limitations, which is perhaps one of the many reasons that late Platonist philosophers, like Porphyry, who actually wrote an introduction to Aristotle's logic, were so focused on the meaning events which occur outside of the system laid down by Aristotle. In other words, they think that the really good stuff is not happening in the realm that we can describe with words. It's happening outside this realm. It's ineffable. But let's look at the rise of apophatic language historically. One important approach to this problem has been to look at it as an internal development of Hellenic thought, Listeners are probably familiar with the third volume of Festugière's Révélation des trismégiste, entitled Le Dieu inconnu et la NOS, The Unknown God and Gnosis. The first half of this volume is a survey of the development of ideas about God, or the first principle, in terms of this God or first principle is ineffable. And Festugière finds these, this development within mathematical, arithmological thought in Plato's work, as re-read by Middle Platonists, in the Middle Platonists themselves, and in the Hermetica, while the second half of the book looks at mystical knowing of God in the Corpus Hermeticum. So this is the gnosis part of the title. This book is an absolute classic, and although we do not agree with many or even most of Festugier's detailed findings, you have to read it if you're interested in the roots of Western esotericism in antiquity. This study is just too learned and important and penetrating, not to read. Also a crucial work to my mind is Raoul Mortley's two-volume From Word to Silence, the title of which we've stolen for this episode, which is a study of the ways in which Hellenic thinkers began over time, firstly to make space in their thinking for ineffability, and then finally in late antiquity to come to privilege silence, that is, the statement of silence, aka what we are calling apophatic language, to privilege it as a higher form of discourse than speech. So in late antiquity, as we shall see in the podcast, more and more people are willing to say things like, true wisdom is in silence, and God speaks in silence, and even the name of God is silence. These two works, Festugier and Mortley, are perhaps the most thorough documentations of the development of more or less the same trend the gradual loss of confidence in the power of language accurately to map all of reality, and the concomitant rise of a commitment to other forms of epistemology—gnosis, visions, transformation into higher beings which have higher forms of consciousness, what have you. These other forms of epistemology bridge the gap between the limited human, with her words and her kind of sequential thinking— and the true reality, which is beyond words. So increasingly less confidence in language, as having the power to bridge the gap between humans and reality as it truly is, and an increasing substitution of other means, which transcend language, for bridging that gap. Both authors emphasize different movements, writers, and so on. Mortley, importantly, had access to documents from Nag Hammadi, Um, which had not been found or published at the time when Festugier was writing in the 1950s, so he includes a lot more so-called Gnostic material than does Festugier. But I feel like a common basic historical model can be drawn from both of these authors. So here it is in brief. There are lots of passages in Plato which can, if read in a particular way, be seen as references to an ineffable reality. We've seen one already in this episode and again, see episode 25 for more of these. You might also want to see episode 34 of the podcast where we discuss Plato's appropriation of mystery culture for philosophy for some more important passages. However, we should be mindful of episode 37 where we interviewed the analytic historian of philosophy, Peter Adamson, who doubted that either Plato or Aristotle would have understood what you meant if you referred to something as ineffable. Many scholars doubt whether it makes sense to talk about a philosophy of the ineffable in the classical period at all, although we should be mindful as a counterexample of people like the philosopher Cratylus, who, Aristotle tells us, was so doubtful that language had any significatory power that he just took an oath of silence and would only waggle his finger for the rest of his life. That was the most meaningful gesture he felt he could make. But note here that Cratylus's critique of language is presented as coming from below, as it were. Language is just inadequate, not for certain objects, like God, for example, but even for things like chairs and penguins and whatever else. Cratylus maybe was a serious post-structuralist thinker avant la lettre, but he was doing something very different, it would seem, from the later apophatics. Um, What we find in the Middle Platonizing and and Late Platonist and Christian and so on developments of apophatic languages, it's not that language is a totally inadequate tool for reality as a whole. It's only inadequate for certain aspects of reality, the highest aspects. Nevertheless, starting from these many useful Platonic passages, we see in Middle Platonism a rise in what can maybe be called apophatic language, or perhaps it should be called aphiretic language, basic negative description. Authors like Philo, Apuleius, Numenius, Celsus, Alcinous, and Atticus are very concerned to deny attributes to their highest reality, which may be regularly called God, which may be a transcendent nous, or which in Alcinous's case may be just be called the first cause. Incidentally, Alcinous and Atticus are two Middle Platonists that we haven't really covered in the podcast because they wrote, for the most part, what you'd have to call non esoteric. Platonist handbooks that basically treat Plato as a dogmatic author with a teaching, but they don't talk about unearthing the secret teachings of Plato. They don't talk about, for the most part, ineffability, but simply lay out kind of mainstream philosophical accounts for all the different aspects of philosophy you might want to talk about. Ethics, uh, cosmology, logic, mathematics, etc., They do, though, by virtue of having this kind of aphiretic approach to the highest reality, partake of the esoteric, I would argue, to a small degree. Nevertheless, we haven't made space for them in the podcast for the the reasons I've just given. These Platonist philosophers often use the so-called alpha-privative adjectives to discuss the highest reality. It is akatalepton, ungraspable, aoriston, unlimited, or if we turn to Latin, in Apuleius, we get a god who is indictus, innominabilis, unsaid and unnameable. Now, we've been covering these developments in Middle Platonism throughout the recent history of the podcast, so you get the idea. We've given a kind of more detailed version of this story in the podcast up till now. Now, another major strand of philosophical speculation which is seen as having given rise to this depredication of the highest reality is the Neo-Pythagorean thought of people like Moderatus and Nicomachus, whom we discussed in episode 87. Um, Both Festugier and Mortley emphasize these thinkers, as does the great Whitaker in a number of important articles and others. These thinkers too reached conclusions based, for example, on the idea that a reality which truly is a pure unity, that would be the one, would be by definition ungraspable by the human mind. And there are many reasons for this. Most importantly, the fact that all cognition, as the Greeks saw it, involves plurality. At the minimum, you have the plurality of a thinker, a thing being thought, an object of thought, and the act of thinking. But the Neopythagorean one has no plurality. There's nothing to grab onto, as it were. It's much more like a zero than a one, if we're going to think about it in numerical terms. These thinkers also tend to wield the alpha privative secateurs quite liberally, shearing away what we can say about the first principle. It is not conceivable. It is not a monad. It's beyond the monad. And so forth. So, between Middle Platonism and the related tradition of Neopythagoreanism, we have a pretty convincing intellectual history of how people, or certain people, started to deny attributes to the highest reality. And the story told by Mortley and Festugier and many another historian of thought is that these philosophical ideas percolated down into the religious realm, and then we get Hermetics and Chaldeans and Gnostics all talking about an ineffable god, because these thinkers are all manifestly imbued with a certain knowledge of Middle Platonist philosophy. We shall return to that model of philosophy-influencing religion in a kind of one-way direction at the end of this episode. But now, just to make explicit how this works, this kind of thinking leads to apophatic language because all statements in natural languages as conceived by the Greeks involve predication. And here we have Aristotle to thank again for defining the terms of the debate. So, predication is the act of applying verbs to nouns, basically. Let's take the sentence, Earl likes to hear himself talk. The subject is Earl, that's me. The predicate, grammatically speaking, is the rest of the sentence. What are we saying about Earl? That he likes to hear himself talk. Now, in a theological or metaphysical context, predications most often involve the verb to be, followed by what is called a subject complement or an adjective. Since we rarely want to say things like, God goes fishing, or God reads the news, but we generally want to say things like, God is blah blah blah. So take the phrase, God is great. Three things. God is the subject. Is is the verb, the verb to be. And great is the predicated thing, the adjective. We are predicating greatness of God. Okay. Now, when you start saying God is ungraspable, what are you predicating of God? Ungraspability. But what you are trying to say is, in fact, not a positive thing, God is ungraspable, but a negative thing. God cannot be grasped. There is no grasping of God. So that this is why they call it negative theology. This idea that you're trying to deny certain things are relevant to God rather than predicate things of God, even though you have to do it through linguistic predication. If you think this is complicated and starts to go down a rabbit hole, do check out our members episode on this subject, and you'll see that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, where this kind of thinking, I think, gets truly apophatic is when thinkers start to look at sentences like, God is great, and say, well, no, we can't predicate anything of God because God transcends language as we've already determined. So even the statement God is great is false. And remember, Aristotle and classical logic doesn't allow for really anything other than true or false statements. So we might say, well, it's not that it's false. It's just a category error. It it just doesn't make sense to say God is great because God is not the sort of thing that can be great. Just like it, it doesn't make sense to say remoteness is green or something like that. But Um, For Aristotle and and classical theoreticians of language in general, remoteness is green is a false statement, not a category error. So if you are Plotinus in the third century, you take this to the next level, and you deny even greatness to the one, even oneness, even the verb to be. You deny everything of the one. This is late antique Apophasis, and it's a doozy. So we see the roots of it in the first century CE, especially in the Platonist and neo traditions, but it finds its full flowering in late antiquity. So this is the very basic intellectual lineage of the denial of predication as it is given by mainstream scholarship, insofar as people who study this stuff can be called mainstream at all. We might want to call it apophatic in its middle Platonist Neopythagorean phase, and I would tend to call it apophatic, but it's not as high octane as the apophasis we find from roughly the third century onward. I think the work of Michael Sells is very useful in this respect. Sells points out that there are degrees of performative intensity in different apophatic writers. Both Plotinus and Apuleius, for example, agree in principle that the highest reality cannot be named. However, what they do with this point is very different. Apuleius says in his On the God of Socrates, discussing how Plato refers to the highest principle as the father of the gods quote, Plato predicates this only because it is impossible for something of unparalleled and ineffable majesty to be comprehended even a little bit by any imitation or speech due to the paucity of human language. End of quote. Not bad. But that's pretty much all Apuleius has to say on the matter. Plotinus, by way of contrast, will spend whole swathes of text and sometimes whole treatises, more or less, in deconstructing his own statements about the One, reapproaching the problem from different angles. And if you're reading Plotinus and hoping to come away with some idea of what the One is, in quotation marks, he will leave you feeling like a wrung out dishcloth while proving that your question about what the one is was misguided from the start, because the one transcends being, and anything else we might say about it. He even attacks the the in the one in any head 6-7. Not even the innocent definite article is safe when it comes to rigorous apophatic stripping away of linguistic predicates. So, to cap off our historical tour of the development of apophatic language, we can just add that this approach becomes more and more fundamental as Late Antiquity progresses, such that we have the late Platonists getting more and more apophatic, Christians like Origen and the Cappadocian Fathers getting more and more apophatic, and by the time we hit Sufism, Kabbalah, and medieval Christian mysticism, so-called, the the ineffability of God is considered a central insight which can be taken for granted. God is beyond our means of expression— So we need to develop funky means of expression devoted to expressing this inability to express God's nature while still being able to speak about God at all. Cue mystical writing. Mysticism is a term we don't use here at the Schwepp, but this is the kind of literature which people are always describing as medieval mysticism. We should now mention that the absolute daddy of Christian apophasis is not Clement. Nor even origin, nor even the Cappadocians, but rather the Pseudo-Dionysius, whom we shall be taking a long, hard look at later in the podcast. Now, the Pseudo-Dionysius speaks of two modes of theological language: apophatic and cataphatic, the language of unsaying and the language of saying or predicating. This is what these terms mean. These terms aren't particularly mysterious in Greek, but they take on this whole very difficult-to-get-your-head-around character when used in a theological or metaphysical context. For the pseudo-Dionysius, both of these modes of doing theology must work in tandem. So you can't do apophatic without doing cataphatic theology, and you can't do cataphatic theology without doing apophatic theology. And I think pseudo-Dionysius is right here. We can actually extend this observation to any theologian or metaphysician who writes about the ineffable. They're always going to be using both forms of discourse, even if they don't define what they're doing as apophatic and cataphatic discourse. Because the only true apophasis, logically, would be silence. But apophasis as a performative act of writing, or speech, involves assertions which are then detorned or deconstructed. God is great. But to call God great is wrong, for nothing can be predicated of God. So God is not great, but we can't say that God is not great because scriptures X, Y, and Z tell us that God is great. We must therefore conclude that God is neither great nor not great, but something that transcends greatness altogether. Note that the result here is apophatic. We haven't said what God is, we've just said what God isn't. But each individual statement I've just made is in fact cataphatic. Even the sentence, nothing can be predicated of God, is in fact a predication. It predicates unpredicability to God. Oops, I said we are not going to go into the labyrinth in this episode, but um, the labyrinth keeps coming to us. But anyway, we'll move on. Now, the development toward more and more apophatic approaches to reality has been widely recognized among historians who are interested in these things but it has been assessed very differently. So old-school classicists of the 19th and early 20th century tended by and large to see the whole transformation of the classical world into the late antique world as a process of cultural decline, the famous failure of nerve immortalized by Gilbert Murray. The rise of apophatic language was of course seen as part of this, usually discussed not in terms of apophatic language, but in terms of mysticism, and mysticism understood as a kind of shrinking away from the hard demands of rationalism, Um, you know, putting the misty into mystical thinking. Now, Dodd's, Festugier, Mortley, and a host of other important scholars have corrected one error in this earlier view very thoroughly. They point out and really prove that the rise of apophatic language reflecting a rise in what we might call apophatic thinking. This was not irrational. This rather reflected rational conclusions of many philosophers that rationality has limits. In other words, apophasis is rational in the face of realities which we conclude logically cannot be the subject of logical conclusions. Oops, labyrinth. But you see what I mean. This wasn't the caricature mysticism of ugly-bugliness. This was the seriously developed thinking about the subject of the unsayable, which, it could be argued, remains a serious challenge to us today. Now think about this. The classical structures of Greek rationalism, as it used to be understood, Aristotle's logic, to take one example, are just obsolete today. We know now for a certainty that the aristotelian syllogistic is a seriously limited system and there are much more powerful logics out there like the one running your computer or smartphone for example and also since godel we know that the classical dream of a complete and coherent provable system of logic is just that it's an unattainable dream so it wasn't possible in the first place but have we made equally obsolete the idea of the transcendent the idea that some or perhaps many or perhaps all of reality escapes the attempts of our language to encapsulate and pin it down. I would say we have not. I would say we have not made this obsolete, I would say this idea, the problem of unsayability is very much with us, while many of the classical rational approaches of people like Aristotle have proven themselves to be dead ends of intellectual history. However, the failure of nerve model is not the only model out there. It's not the only way to conceive of this move toward apophatic ways of thinking and speaking. Festugier, as a Christian, could not, nor did he wish to, argue that God should be seen as in fact quite effable and after all, and he he wouldn't argue that the rise of Christianity in late antiquity was a sign of cultural decadence either. Mortley, too, does not argue for decadence in this context both authors in fact argue that the rise of apophatic language was in many ways a working out of the logic of hellenic thought the internal logic however both authors and a host of others in fact the majority of scholars have made what seems to me to be a major error and um, if they'd just been scholars of esotericism they wouldn't have made this error this in brief is to have modeled the mutual influence of philosophy and religion as a one-way street, going from philosophy to religion. There was much traffic from philosophy to religion, and there can be no doubt of this. We are right to refer, for example, to the Chaldean oracles, the Hermetica, Jewish and Christian Platonists like Philo and Clement, and other platonizing religious texts like the Sethian treatises, as being religious expressions of ideas drawn from Middle Platonist philosophy. That's not all they are, but that's part of what they are. So far, so good. However, was this traffic of ideas really one way? When we get to Plotinus, we should be discussing this question in some depth, because recent work is arguing for a very strong, perhaps a seminal, Abrahamic influence on Plotinus's philosophy. And obviously, if you want to study theurgy later in late antiquity, it's just a joke if you don't consider that theurgical philosophers had taken demotic religious rituals on board and philosophized them. In other words, there was religion coming into philosophy. Now, to the old school, they realized this about theurgy, but this is exactly why these later philosophers should be seen as decadent. But we have no truck with these narratives of decadence here at the Schwepp, and we also have no truck with the idea of philosophy as somehow pure activity existing outside of society. To see what I mean here, without even going into the problems of modeling this in antiquity, we can do a thought experiment based on modern times. So we have these institutions called universities. We refer to them collectively as academe or academia. And academia is coming up all the time with scientific, philosophical, and other knowledge. Now, this knowledge doesn't all stay in academia. Some of it filters out by various mechanisms, like this podcast, for example into the public at large. Now, is this really a one-way street? Are we really going to think that academics themselves never chat with regular folks, or read newspapers, or take on board ideas they hear in non-academic contexts? Seems a bit oversimplistic, doesn't it? This is why, from our perspective at the Schwepp, we need to inject the Hermetica, the Chaldeans, and so on, into the story of the rise of apophatic language. They're not merely a popular unphilosophic result of this tendency of thought, as they're kind of painted to be by Festugier, Mortley, and others. They're actually an integral part of the story. And we can finish this episode with a lovely bit of Apophasis from Basilides, which we somehow missed out when we did our episode on that great first century Christian philosopher, but it's it's all worked out for the good, because we can present it to you now. Now, this is the first century, remember. We have Philo of Alexandria. Doing some fairly apophatic things, calling God ungraspable and unsayable and so forth. But we have Basilides taking unpredication of God very, very seriously indeed. Check this out. This is Basilides speaking about the ontological moment or time <laughs> before the creation, when there was nothing but God. Quote, There was a time when nothing was, but the nothing was not any existing thing. Rather, there was purely and straightforwardly, without any sophism, absolutely not a single thing. When I say there was a time, I'm not saying that there literally was, but I say that there was absolutely not a thing in order to intimate what it is that I'm trying to explain, for that is not absolutely ineffable, which is named. That indeed which we call ineffable is not ineffable, and the not even ineffable is not named ineffable, but is above any name it could be given. End of quote. Now, if that did not bend your mind a little bit, you were not paying attention. If we want to call this religion rather than philosophy, okay, then we might want to consider the idea that these ideas expressed in the first century. By a religious thinker are simply ahead of the curve of where philosophers were at. But the philosophers eventually caught up in about the third century, when they really started to take this apophatic business seriously. What we do see in people like Basilides, whether we want to call them religious or philosophical, is a highly developed apophatic approach to the highest reality. Stripping away names, stripping away attributes, language returning on itself to deconstruct itself, all in the service one assumes of getting the listener or the reader to stop lazily attributing attributes and names and categories to that to which none of these things can be applied, i.e. God. But God is above any name it could be given, so we can't say God. You get the picture. As we go forward in the podcast, let's keep in mind... The rise in ideas of ineffability and the concomitant rise in the language of ineffability, with all the contradictions that implies, as increasingly a supreme strategy of esoteric discourse among both religious thinkers and philosophers. And anyway, the late Platonists and apophatic Christians, like Origen, Cappadocians, and Pseudo Dionysius, are all philosophers, anyhow. It's philosophical, it's religious. And in the form of high-intensity apophatic writing, it's the new language of the esoteric in late antiquity. So I invite you to stay esoteric, like the referent of the statement, God is great, which can never be resolved into a stable cataphatic predication, but must oscillate eternally between the poles of affirmation and denial, making it a revealing of a hiding over a revealing, of a hiding, of 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 a revealing, of a hiding.